Sometimes he seems so distant, so different. Is he even real? What if that transcendent, holy, glorious creator of the universe wanted to meet us? What if we could know him, not just know about him, but actually know him? Encountering God. A new series at Stapleton Church. All right, as we're still passing the plate around, I want you to go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Job chapter 38. We're going to cover a big chunk of the book of Job today, chapters 38 all the way to the end in chapter 42. So I want you to have it because we'll flip around a little bit. You can follow along on the screen as well because today we're talking about those questions we have for God. Have you ever had questions for God? Yeah? Questions for God. Why God? How could you do that? How could you allow that to happen? Why did that have to happen to my family, to me, to that person? I remember when I was in Nebraska, there was a man there named Dan, and Dan had an incredible voice. Dan could sing. And he was really good at leading other people to sing as well. He would lead worship at our church regularly, and he had a great voice. He would even direct the choir, and he was great at it. He made people feel good and made them be able to sing. Dan was even so good that um, people in funerals, whenever they would have a funeral, they would seek out Dan to sing solos at their funerals because he was that great of a vocalist. He was always on call, and he would always generously give his time, whether it was to the church or to people he had never even met in the community. Dan had an incredible voice, and that's why I had to ask why when he got diagnosed with throat cancer. I remember uh, Dan... uh, owned a propane company and he would deliver propane tanks and one day I went out with him right after he had gotten the diagnosis and he was pretty upbeat he was a very upbeat cheerful guy and he said okay yeah yeah I got this but I'm going to get through the treatments and they've told me that I'll probably never be able to sing again you know why Dan he was such a servant to others why that type of cancer of all the types of cancer he could get why did he have one that would affect his maybe greatest gift that he had to give others I had a lot of questions, and I know he had more, and so did his family. And I remember sitting with him through his treatments and sitting in the couch next to him and just talking about this because there's so many questions that come up in a time like this. Why? How come? It doesn't make sense. Don't you have those questions too? That's what happens when a storm comes in your life. I'm using storm as that analogy, although sometimes, like what happened in central Nebraska and the Midwest, storms literally come and wreak havoc on our lives. But when these storms come into our lives, sometimes it's a trial, maybe it's a diagnosis, maybe it's a financial issue, maybe it's someone, um, a child that's having an issue, your own child. And these things happen to you and you're saying, why? It doesn't make any sense. How could this happen? How, how could God allow this to happen? We, we bring God into it, right? We have questions for him. Sometimes we yell at him, don't we? Even accusing him, God, what are you thinking? How could you allow that to happen to that person or to me? How come that type of cancer doesn't make sense? When the storm comes, we have a lot of questions, right? And sadly, those storms and those questions that are raised out of it can lead people away from faith in God. Can lead people to bitterness and anger, and I don't want that to happen to you. I want to help you through your storm. Some of you today are in a storm, 
or you're thinking about a storm from another person. Someone just before the service was telling me about a friend of theirs going through a terrible storm in their life. And it hurts us too. And we're saying, why is that happening? When those storms happen, how do we get through them? That's what I want to help you today. Because that's when God shows up. We have a God in the storm. We have a God who's there with us and in control in the storm. And and we're going to learn how to turn to that God and even how to have an encounter with God during those difficult times because that's what happened to Job. That's what happened to Job, and that's what we're going to see in our book. And and in this series, Encountering God, we've been looking at some of these major encounters that human beings had in the Bible with the God of the universe because he's active in the world, active in our lives. He's not just someone who stepped back and said, I'm just going to let all these storms happen. No, 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 he's active in it. So we're going to learn from that, and, and we're going to help you follow Jesus. And so, so that's important for us, helping you follow Jesus, because some of you are in a storm. We want to help you through it. But some of you know somebody else in a storm. And your job to help people follow Jesus is to help them through it. So we can learn something. Even if right now you're like, things are going well in my life, just learn some things. Maybe you can pass on to some, someone else to encourage them and pray for them and love them through that storm. So let's look at the God in the storm from Job chapter 38. We read in verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Just want to stop there for a minute. We pick up this story and God is speaking out of a storm. I want you to see that very clearly. God is there in the storm, in the midst of the storm. God chooses to show up in all these different ways in the Bible. We've seen him show up in the burning bush that isn't really burning. Uh, a spoken word last week. There's this audible voice that Samuel heard. God shows up in all sorts of different ways. But for Job, God showed up in the storm. And he speaks out of that very storm. Why is this significant? Well, do you know Job's story? Let me tell you a little bit of background on this. This is one of the longest books in the Bible, so a lot of us kind of shy away from reading it. It's very elegantly written. It's in prose. It's in poetry. And it tells the story of a man named Job. And when you start reading in the very beginning of the book of Job, Job is introduced as a very good person, a righteous man. He was so righteous that he would have these daily devotionals, and he would offer sacrifices for his children. He had ten of them, just in case they did something wrong. He wanted to atone for their sins, and so he's going to offer sacrifices. He's very righteous. He's doing his morning devotionals like times ten, right? This is a great righteous man who did nothing wrong, and he became very wealthy. He had a lot of um, livestock, which is money. It's money. He had a lot of livestock, a lot of servants working for him, so he has a, a lot of employees. He owns a huge business. He has ten children, seven sons, three daughters. But Satan saw Job, and he thought... The only reason why he's a good person is because good things have happened to him. He's only righteous because everything has been right in his life. So Satan goes to to God. That's what literally happens in the beginning of Job. We kind of get peeled back this heavenly curtain to see a little bit about what's going on in the spiritual realm. And Satan goes to God and says, the only reason why Job is good is because you've done good to him. So let me do some bad things to him. And God says, okay. It's interesting, it's mysterious what's happening, but God says you can do this, but you can't harm him personally. No matter what you do, do not harm him. So Satan goes, and he begins to harm everyone else and everything else around Job. Job is sitting there one day, and these messengers come up to him and said, hey, one of your flocks just got raided by an enemy, and all the servants were killed, and the animals taken away. 
And he had three different flocks, and all three of them are destroyed in different ways. All of his wealth is wiped out in one day. And then another messenger comes to him and says, your family was all getting together for a birthday party. All ten of your children were together. And a windstorm came. A storm came and knocked the foundations of that building and it collapsed and killed all of your children. In one moment. Could you imagine being Job in that situation? Talk about a storm. All his children died. No parent should have to deal with that. No parent should have to feel the loss of their own child. But to lose ten of them in one day and everything he owned... He fell down and he wept. He fell down and wept, but he said this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return to the earth. May the name of the Lord be praised. It's incredible to see that even through that he had faith. He said, none of this was mine to begin with, and I'm not going to take any of this with me. And Satan saw that and he said, oh, God, the only reason why he's still faithful to you is because I haven't been allowed to harm him personally. And God said, well, try it. And God allowed Satan to harm him personally, but not kill him. So Satan goes and puts these sores all over Job's Job's body so that he's just itchy and scratchy, oozy. Oh, I can't imagine the pain he's in there. And he just sits down on the ground and weeps again. And his wife comes up to him, says, curse God and die. What's the point in living anymore? What's the point in having faith to a God that would allow that to happen to you? And once again, he stands in faith. And he weeps and mourns and laments. And then what happens from chapter 3 all the way up to chapter 38, where we're going to pick up the story, is that Job is lamenting. And that's a very biblical thing. We don't do that, and I think we should in our culture. When we're sad, we should lament. We should talk about how awful things are and express our feelings. That's what Job did, even crying out to God. And, and Job had these friends. We call them friends, but literally Job calls them miserable comforters because they came to him. And if any of you have been mourning and been through a storm, you know that sometimes your friends say the worst things or they say the, the right thing at the wrong time. That's what Job's friends were. And they were saying, Job, well, probably the reason why all this suffering has come on you is because you did something wrong. You deserve this. Ooh, don't say that. Don't say that, okay? Don't be like Job's friends. But they would go back and forth and they would argue and and Job would vent his rage to God. God, how could you allow this? He would ask all these questions of God. God, why did you even let me be born? I would rather not have existed than to suffer the way I have suffered. And this goes on and on and on as they go back and forth. Three friends and then a fourth friend comes and it just they keep going back and forth, complaining and, and talking and blaming Job for the situation that he is in. And through all of this, more questions arise than answers. You can see why, right? Why would this happen? How could this How could we suffer this way? And after all these questions, after Job's complaints that he's laid before God, even accusing God of of doing these awful things to him, that's where we pick up a God that speaks out of the storm. God speaks out of the storm. And, And I do point that out very clearly because God is in that storm. I think he chose to show up in the very thing that destroyed 
Job's family. It was a windstorm, remember? And here again, in a storm, God shows up. I think what God is saying is that, hey, when a storm happens, I'm there. And as we see in the very beginning, a lot of people don't like this truth, but God deliberately allowed these things to happen to Job. He didn't cause them. He is not the cause of evil. It was Satan that brought all this evil upon Job, but God allowed that to happen. And he gave limits to it as well. He said, you can go this far, but no farther. You can allow this much suffering, but not that. See, God was in control that whole time, and I think that's the reason why he shows up in the storm. Some of us don't like this type of a God. We don't want to talk about a God like that. But think of the alternatives. Just think for a second of the alternatives. What if, what if God wasn't in control? I once uh, talked with a young man who had been raised Christian but left the faith even claiming to... He said, yeah, I'm either an agnostic or an atheist depending on the day. And I said, well, why is it that you don't believe in God? And he said, well, look at all the suffering in the world. How can there be so many innocent people that are suffering? I mean, Job is case in point, right? The Bible clearly says multiple times that he is innocent. He has done no wrong. And yet all this suffering has happened to him. So this man said, how how could that happen? But what are the alternatives? The alternatives would be that Satan is in control, that God has no idea what Satan is going to do. Satan is just on the loose, or, or maybe some version of yin and yang. You know, the idea that good and evil are there, kind of fighting back and forth. It's the good side of the force and the dark side of the force. Who knows what's, who's going to win? Sometimes the dark side has control, sometimes the good side. I mean, this is what a lot of people think is happening in our world. But if that's true, that's scary. Because then the good is not in control. Then God is not in control. Then there's no purpose to this. It's just evil out of hand. That's one option. Another option is the more popular one in our country. It's just chance. It's random. There is no God in control, and whatever happens just happens. And when suffering happens, well, too bad for you. You're the short end of the stick. Man, how bleak of a worldview is that? Honestly, would you choose that over a God who deliberately allows some suffering? I want you to think about these questions As we read this story today. So as God begins to speak out of the storm, we see in verses 2 and 3 something surprising. God says, who is this? Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, God says. I will question you and you shall answer me. See, we're the ones who question God, right? We ask him, why are you doing this? How could you do this? But what if he came to you and said, let me ask you a few questions. In this encounter that's unique in the whole Bible, God shows up to question Job. You were complaining about me. You were pointing out all the things saying, why did you do this, God? How could you allow that to happen? Let me ask you a few questions. Let me ask you a few questions. In verse 4, I want you to just see a few of these questions because it goes on for about four chapters. In verse 4, God says, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Then in verse 6, On what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone? 
you know what God is saying? Tell me, you wise one, who's blaming me for all these problems and all this evil in the world. Did you create the universe? Do you know how it started? Were you there at the beginning? What's the answer? No. Still today, in all our best science, we get out the best telescopes we have and we think that the universe was created some 14 billion years ago. This is our best guess and estimate. And yet we look back at that 14 billion years ago, if that's how it started. Well, how did that start? The Big Bang? Oh, this is a great theory. But where did the bang come from? Who put those atoms together that there just happened to be enough that this explosion happens? Who did that? Why did those things exist? Whenever we go back and back and back, we ask one question and we think we've solved an answer, but really we've just pushed the question back another level. You ever thought about that? Even Aristotle, back before we had these telescopes, said that at the beginning there had to have been an unmoved mover. That's what he said. Or an uncaused first cause. How could anything exist if there wasn't something outside of time and outside of everything else that started everything? You know when scientists first hypothesized the Big Bang, most scientists did not want to accept it. Do you know why? Because it points to someone behind it all. There has to be something else behind it. It doesn't make sense for there just to be these particles floating around and all of a sudden the singularity happens and boom. What brought those together? And that's what God's asking. He said, you've been studying this for years, for generations, even in Job's day. Where did it come from? Were you there? Do you know how to put the universe together? I mean, I feel like I did a great job when I installed a ceiling light. You with me? When you change out batteries, you feel good about yourself. God is saying, could you start the entire universe into existence? Could you do that? Were you there? See these questions? God goes on in this chapter. I want to show you another one. Verse 17. God says, have the gates of death been shown to you? Do you even know what happens when you die? What happens? Why is it that we have this thing called our consciousness that scientists have and philosophers have no explanation for why it exists? And yet we can see people that when they die, something happens. And even if the body is brought back to life, we call them what? Brain dead. They're in a vegetative state. How does that exist? Where is the consciousness? Where did it go? With the best science we have, we have no clue. God is saying, where does life come from? Where does life go when death happens? Is it just snuffed out? As you human beings on your own, you have no clue about any of it. Where did life come from? Even if you have this big bang, where did life emerge from? They say, oh, there was this, this perfect atmospheric conditions and the lightning struck and there's these chemicals. And We'll prove it. You can't. We've never been able to create life at all. So why are we the ones questioning God? That's what he's saying. I'm questioning you. One of the great astronomers of uh, the last century, Alan Sandage, an astronomer and, and cosmologist, he said, it is my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than can be explained by science. He famously became a Christian because he said, I cannot find answers to these big questions, no matter how much we study. In fact, our science itself cannot answer these questions. We human beings cannot get there. 
And God goes on in this chapter. I encourage you to read this on your, on your own. He talks about the universe, the constellations. Where did the stars come from? Why do they exist the way they do? Why is the sun a certain distance from the earth to allow habitable life? And why have we looked around and still not been able to find any other life in the universe? He asks questions about the animals and the creatures that live. Why do they act a certain way? Even if you take, say it's natural selection or evolution, why did they evolve that way and another creature a different way? We have no idea. We come up with these theories, but we don't know. We don't know. And after two chapters of God questioning, interrogating Job, tell me about this. Why is this the way that it is? Finally, in chapter 40, we read, The Lord said to Job in verse 1, verse 2, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. God says, explain it to me. If you're so wise and you think you know how the earth should operate, why the universe should be a certain way, you tell me. Could you imagine God saying that to you? I'm glad we just get to read about this encounter. Verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. He's saying, I am silenced. I've been asking these questions, but you're right. I don't even understand the basic properties of things like gravity or molecules and how they work. And even if you do, you wonder, well, why are they the way they are? We don't know. Job is completely and utterly silenced. C.S. Lewis once wrote a great essay called God in the Dock. God in the Dock. Now, in, British, um, in the British justice system, there's a thing called the dock. We don't have it in our justice system, but the dock is where a, an accused criminal sits during a trial. It's like this wooden box that they said. It's not a witness stand, but the accused criminal would have to sit in the dock. That's what it's called. And C.S. Lewis uses this analogy because he says that it used to be that people were in the dock and God was judging us and questioning us. That people would always be afraid, like, oh no, am I doing the wrong thing? I feel guilty, I better confess my sin to God. Even people who believed in the gods or even inanimate objects, these forces, I need to offer sacrifices to get in right with the gods. Maybe I've done something that's caused my suffering, so I need to appease the gods. Because we were in the dock. But modern man has put God in the dock. We've stepped aside and said, God, I'm going to question you. I'm going to ask you why you did it that way. Why you allow this suffering and evil. How could you do that, God? We put God on trial. But that's not how it is. In fact, it is in God's pure mercy that he allows us to do that. And doesn't smite us right there. He listens to Job's complaints for literally <laughs> 30 chapters. And then he shows up and said, no, 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 let's reverse the roles. Let's reverse the roles. God is not in the dock. I want you to look at a couple more verses of God questioning Job, because he goes on again for two more chapters. In verse 8 of chapter 40, we read, Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? What God is saying is, you think I'm unjust because I allow these things to happen and I allow innocent people to suffer? 
what would you do? Could you do it any better? Could you do it any better? Could you protect people? Because you human beings are sinful. You hurt each other. You cause suffering to each other. As, as Grant pointed out in our Genesis series, our sin has brought all this destruction into the world. Could we do any better job than God could? I asked that young man that I told you about earlier. I said, okay, you, you say that you don't believe in God because there's suffering in the world. For one, why would that mean that there's no God? I want to show you one more verse before I, I get to that idea. In verse 11 of chapter 41, God says, Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Do you know what God is saying? What right at all do you have to complain? Because everything you have comes from me. I just want you to imagine a little thought experiment for a second that you owned a big mansion. You owned a beautiful house and you invited someone to come and live in it. You generously put them up in your house and gave them a room. You even had a stock fridge for them at all times so that they could eat. And everything was provided for them. What would you do if that friend came to you one day and said, where are the Cocoa Puffs? I eat Cocoa Puffs every morning and there's no more Cocoa Puffs. Why won't you give me my Cocoa Puffs? I deserve them. You'd say, hey, hey, hey. I'm letting you live in my house. Eat the Lucky Charms. Seriously. But that's what we do, don't we? All this thing we have. It tells us in the Bible that in God we live, move, and have our being. The very breath we breathe is generosity from God. Everything we have is from Him. So who are we to claim, God, why didn't you give me something? So I told this young man, I, I said, you know, you're saying that you don't believe in God. Could you imagine that person living in the house? Saying, because you don't have the Cocoa Puffs for me when I want them, I don't believe in you. You don't exist. What? That doesn't make any sense. See, atheism is very illogical. I'm sorry for those of you who are atheists in here. I want to challenge you a little bit. It doesn't make any sense. Why would it be if there's suffering in the world that God allows that he therefore does not exist? Or is it completely random chance, like we said at the beginning? Man, that's terrible. If Satan is then in charge, if evil just runs amok, that's scary. All those scenarios are way worse than there's a God who knows what he's doing. And even if I don't get it, I'm going to trust that he does. I want to show you one more thing. Jump down to chapter 42. After God questions Job again for two chapters, it's finally over. Verse 42, we read, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Surely I spoke of things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Verse 4, Job says, You said, Listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. When God reversed the tables, my ears had heard of you, Job said, but now my eyes have seen you. For the first time in his life, Job is fully aware of who God is. What's interesting is he doesn't need answers anymore. Verse 6, Job says, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Do you feel the humility of Job's response now? There's no more questioning. 
There's no more accusations. He realizes that maybe there is a God and he has encountered him. He has seen him now in this storm that God is bigger than all the things that he's ever imagined. That God knows all of those answers to the questions that we don't. He knows how the universe was formed, why life exists, what happens after you die. That God knows why justice is the way that it is and why injustice has happened. He has a plan and he has it all figured out. And Job says, I despise myself. I am humbled before you because you are God and I am not. Job has now taken God out of the dock and put God on the throne. This is what Job realized that day. What Job realized is that you don't need to know why. You need to know the God who's in control. That's what Job realized, and I hope that you do as well today. You don't need to know why. You don't need to have answers to all your questions. Because we have a lot of questions. I do too. I'm right there alongside you asking the questions, just like Job was asking the questions. This righteous man was asking these questions, even accusing God of things. But we don't need to know why. We need to know the God who's actually in control. Isn't it interesting that God doesn't give any answers to Job's questions? That's how it is sometime in our lives, right? I don't know why that cancer came. I don't know why this suffering happened in my life. I don't know why any of it happened. Sometimes we can put together some pieces and we see afterwards, okay, now I see a reason for that. But you still wonder, why that way, God? Why couldn't you have gone a different way to get to that same route? We don't know. We may never get the answers in this life that we seek. But we can know the person who knows all the answers. And that's why we need to learn to trust the God who's in control. I spent a ton of time, if we can go back to verse 6, I spent a ton of time researching the word repent. I spent hours researching this word. Because in Hebrew, that word repent um, is naham. And it actually rarely means repent. Only about, you know... 20 out of 108 times in the Hebrew Old Testament does that mean repent. Like changing behavior. Because when we talk about repentance, it's like changing from a bad behavior to a good behavior. And I struggled with this uh, translation of it because everywhere, before and after this, Job is called a righteous man. That he did nothing wrong. So why is he repenting here? Well, the thing is, most of the time that word repent actually just means a change of mind. Even God is told to change his mind on occasion. When he was going to destroy Nineveh and then they repent, he changes his mind and decides not to destroy them. He knew all along. But the point is that he changed his perspective. And I think that's what it means here. Job, unlike the rest of us, had nothing to repent of because of his sinful behavior. But he was thinking about God wrongly. He was thinking that God had to answer to his questions. But now after encountering the God of the universe, he realizes, no, 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 it's the other way around. And I don't need to know why. He's changed his complete attitude and perspective. Because I don't need to know why. I probably won't ever know why the ins and outs of this suffering. But I know the God who knows why. In fact, that's what Oz Guinness once said. He said, as believers, we cannot always know why. But we can always know why we trust God who knows why. And this makes all the difference. Makes all the difference. So I want to encourage you and challenge you to change your mindset. I know that this is a hard word to hear, but it's so important for us, especially those of us that go through storms. If you're in a storm right now, I don't have a specific answer for you, but I know that God does. And you can trust him. 
So we need to humble ourselves. Yes, we're accusatory, and, and that's okay. Job does it too. Even Jesus asked some questions of God. It's okay to have those questions. It's even okay to accuse God. You read the Psalms again and again, and we find these accusations. God, why would you do this? How long will this go on? We're allowed to ask those questions, but at some point we need to humble ourselves. Say, God, I will trust you that you are in control over all these things. That you know why, even if I don't. I hope that you can change your perspective, just like Job did. I have a short little video that I want to watch with a guy, uh, David, I told you about. Um, I remembered his story this week because David, his first Sunday was a Sunday that I was talking about Job. And I remembered it. I called him up and I talked with him and I looked his, I, I have a piece of his testimony from 2013 when he decided to get baptized. And then a piece of his testimony that he can share today. I want you to hear this story. Wednesday before finals, um, my junior year of college, and uh, at the time my wife and I were expecting, and we were going for our first ultrasound, and it was, I was like the happiest person on, I just remember that day I was like giddy almost, and um, uh, we got in the car and we went, and I remember I was so nervous, and uh, we went through the, the ultrasound, and uh, Fortunately, they didn't find a heartbeat, so we lost our first child there. And um, it was a tough day for me. Um, at that point, I literally, I just hit rock bottom. I was already maxed out on schoolwork, so I, I thought I couldn't take any more. And then, when you know it, something else like this happens. And um, I just remember that night, um, my wife's in surgery. I just, I literally I just collapsed. I was just sitting on the floor thinking to myself, I was like, God, I don't know why you're doing this to me. Um, but I hope there's a reason. And uh, it was actually a, a friend of mine that I had known my whole life, and we'd never once spoke religion. And he said, you know, he said, it's in God's plans, and you just got to know that. He goes, I'm not going to say anything else, but you just got to know what's in the plan. And I don't know why that one hit me so hard, but it did. That day was the worst day of my life and the best day of my life at the same time because it took me scraping on the very bottom before I, I finally just had enough and I couldn't take it anymore. And um, I'm happy to say I've been full Christian and Jesus is my Savior. And ever since that day, I just I go with the mentality of, you know what, it's already been decided. It's in his plans. Just go with it. If it doesn't work out the way you want it to, that's... It wasn't supposed to be, you know, and uh, it feels good to just know that it's okay. God gave me two beautiful boys, a loving wife. I couldn't be more thankful. As I sit here, I'm sitting in my house that was flooded this last weekend. Uh, we lost everything. Anything that had contact with up to about 18 inches um, was completely submerged in water and mud and so I sit here today with a smile on my face because I know it's going to be okay God is in control his plan is much more complex than someone like I could ever understand and that's okay I have faith that his plan will 
working with me, that his plan is much, much greater than just me. You know, we, we often complain about those who suffer innocently, but there was only one person who actually suffered innocently, and that was our Savior, Jesus Christ. And what's amazing is Jesus was, in one hand, the man who could calm the storms. With his voice, he stilled the seas. And they said about him, Who is this man whom the winds and the waves would obey? And that same Jesus would be the one who would go and innocently suffer for all of us in our place. And he had questions for God on the cross. He said, why, oh why have you forsaken me? And he cried out to God. But he willingly went to that death knowing that somehow in that suffering it would provide the redemption of the entire world. If you read the story, the end of Job's story, you know that he faced redemption. He received back double of all that he had. He had three new beautiful daughters and he ended his life in redemption. Now, we know that we won't be rich, and the people that have died in our lives, we might not ever see again until eternity. But we do know that there is redemption for us. That there is a Savior who died for us innocently in our place to offer us that redemption if we believe and trust Him. Because He is on the throne, not on the dock. Would you please stand with me? If you're here and you're in a storm right now, I'm going to be in the back. We're going to have some people in the back to pray with you. We want to help you and encourage you today if you're struggling. But everyone else, I want us to raise a hallelujah right now to the King who is on the throne. I'll raise 